Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And all month long during commencement season, we love to bring you commencement addresses, some memorable ones, recent and old. And our commencement speech today comes to us from our friends at Hillsdale College. The class of 2019 invited the Commandant of the Marine Corps to speak at their graduation, and the General accepted. Here's General Robert Neller, and by the way, you're going to hear him reference Dr. Larry Arn, our friend and the president of Hillsdale College, and you'll also hear him mention Pat Sajak, who's the new chairman of the board at Hillsdale, and you know Pat from his work at Wheel of Fortune. Let's take a listen to General Robert Neller. I don't, I don't give speeches, um, so I'm going to ask permission from Dr. Arne to walk around and, and talk to you a little bit. But uh, to he and, and uh, Mr. Sajak, new chairman of the board, I did, I did consider the offer you made me, Dr. Arne, because he thinks so much of you seniors that he said, just take them all and enlist them in the Marine Corps. And I said, yes. No, I'm just kidding. I had you for a second, though, didn't I? For me, this is uh, probably not a normal thing. Yesterday and today, I was presiding and giving an oath of office, commissioning about 35 officers in the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps. Yesterday at College Station, Texas A&M, and today here at Hillsdale. So what am I going to say to you that would be different than what I would say to a group of young men and women that are putting on the uniform to defend their nation and take on the demands of that profession? I don't really think it's any different. And I don't think it's any different than what you've heard here while you've been a student at Hillsdale. I think the qualities and the attributes that make people successful. I think if you talk to Mr. Sajak or all the other people that are here, the Van Andels or all the people in business and the very successful people who rightfully and properly support this university, this college, there's no rocket science here. So in the Marine Corps, they they tell you to keep it in threes because people can remember three things. So let me give you three thoughts. Effort matters. You wouldn't be sitting here today getting ready to come across this podium to receive a degree if you are not able to exert effort. But that effort doesn't end today. In fact, the demands of your effort are going to be even greater. There's a huge amount of talent among you. Your talent is only going to result in achievement if you're willing to put in the effort. And thus far you have, and I know you'll continue to do that. The demands on your effort as you compete against people outside this college and around the world are going to require more effort. The United States is in a competition around the world with others. It will take our effort to come out on top. The second thing, there will be adversity. There may have already been adversity in your life. Uh, Your parents will probably tell you about adversity. Maybe it was adversity that they've dealt with. Somebody But there will be times in the future when things won't go well. It may be professionally, it may be personally, 
There will be days when you'll be challenged, but your measure as a man or woman of virtue and character is going to be graded on or evaluated on how you persevere. You can't quit. You can't quit. I mean, the Marine Corps teaches us that. You can't quit. You figure out, you adapt, you overcome, you persevere. You figure out a way to solve the problem. And you've got all these people that Dr. Arn talked about, friends of the college, your parents, your friends, your family, your fellow classmates, who are going to be there to help you figure it out. You're never alone. You're never alone. So we have to overcome. We have to persevere. And the third thing is character counts. Character counts. And that's what this college is really all about. This college is all about character. I mean, you're smart, you're academically qualified, but I think the thing that may give you an edge is the discussions you've had about what's right, what's wrong, what's honor, what's integrity, what's virtue, what is a good man or woman speaking well, what is accountability and responsibility. So all those character traits, you think about the person in your life, they may be sitting in this room with us. They may be in the faculty here. They may be friends, they, but they're probably family members, coaches, teachers, people that you admire, that inspired you over the years to get you to this point today. And they had all those qualities. They worked hard. They exerted effort. They were men and women of virtue and character. They were humble. They were respectful. They did everything to make everybody else better. It was never about them. It was always about the team. So character counts. So that's my message. Effort matters, character counts, and we have to persevere in all things that we do. In closing, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today, and I congratulate you all on your achievement, and I congratulate your families for their support. Because at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, they're going to say something about us. And the first part of that sentence has already been written. It's going to say your name, your hometown, and it's going to say Hillsdale graduate. And then there's a space. There's a space. And somebody's going to write something in that space. And now you own that space. So what do you want it to say? This college has given you the foundation to fill that space in the right and proper way. And I know you're going to take advantage of that. So make it count. Make it count. And what a great message. Effort, perseverance, character. And by the way, Hillsdale teaches all those things in spades. And my goodness, I would entrust no group of students more to own the space and make good use of it than the Hillsdale graduates. This is Lee Habib, General Robert Neller's commencement address to the Hillsdale College Class of 2019, and he is, of course, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. This is Our American Story.
stories and back in the day opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new american frontier these men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new american mythology today with the passing of time the myth of the notorious highway robber black bart is coming face to face with reality here's greg hengler with the story of black bart Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado. What have we got here, folks? Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph. Well, says me, my trusty old Red Rider carbine action to on the shop range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. No reason. In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas Story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado. Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be back! Idiots, Bart! What if you do come back? You'll be pushing up daisies! But Black Bart's real story is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwaymen Black Bart. Black Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, uh, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. No other road agent could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother David left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River and then throughout the Motherlode country. Life in the diggings was rugged and many a prospector died from disease, accident or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. 
grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gail Jenner. Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on. Charles continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them, but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. To march with Sherman's army, you certainly are fit. He was very demanding of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed, and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places, that would be of value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart. Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle, and then just before the war ended, was commissioned a second lieutenant. After the war, his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often, he sent Mary a letter, saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting, but as word as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims increased. Well, you can thank Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems like they aimed to buy up the whole territory. Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. They'd buy up businesses and all lands surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner. There was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him. Mr. Bow! Welcome, gentlemen. What can I do for you? We want to buy your claim. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Good day. It doesn't look like much is coming. There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day. It'd be a shame if it didn't. Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Rumors of the company going into the mining business make Bowl suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. 
his claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of the American West, W.C. Jameson. What Wells Fargo did is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to abandon his gold mine. Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo, making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hardworking miner and former Union soldier with dreams of striking it rich made a bold decision to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family, cut himself off from the past, and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred, toward Wells Fargo. In preparation for his revenge, Bowles did his homework. I watched the stages from a second camp, far from my home camp, to ascertain the exact time they passed. I found them to be at the same spot every morning at 7 a.m. All over Northern California, they were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story, the real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles aka Black Bart and we had learned that lots of gold was shipping all around this country from place to place and my goodness that made those gold carriers ripe targets for highwaymen that is bandits let's continue with the story of Black Bart In July 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo Express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the Mother Lode country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped from behind a boulder. Put down that box. Please. Well, the demand from this hooded figure 
was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flour sack with two holes cut for the eyes, and even his boots couldn't be seen. They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, Highwayman yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. The driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwayman and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are. With a real sense of urgency, the driver threw the express box onto the road. The highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins. A frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road. The highwayman picked it up bowed and returned it to her, saying in a deep and resonant voice, Madam, I have no desire of your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. I don't know what you're reaching for, friend. Charles has poked sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Just give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, he's, he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out. Good day to you, sir. Thank you, Kai. He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian Chris Entz. Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolton because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city. Yes, sir. What's that, man? Circumstances compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets. He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent. He was sharp. <laughs> now let us turn to the case of Summerfield and that notorious bandit, Black Bart. He's incredibly well-read. In addition to Shakespeare and that kind of thing, he also reads the Sacramento Union. And in the Union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named Bartholomew Graham, or Black Bart. Charles Bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman Black Bart. Following Black Bart's first robbery, Wells Fargo detective James Hume was put on the case. 
Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall Trimble. James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to make things right. Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology and such is starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And this is what Hume is uh, really adept at. Welcome to school, boy. Hume was one of the great detectives of the Old West. But this Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable. He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that. Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a, a lone man. Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, read it. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of... Black Buck. Poet. He's mocking me. He's mocking me! Hume didn't know what to do with witness testimonies. What was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir, he was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left of the cash box over there. The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally. Wells Fargo is putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this Black Bart, and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke. And so they're determined now to try and figure this out. And lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions. Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884. I refuse to buy a romanticized image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public. Jim Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart. Bart was armed, but he didn't shoot back, though. Nope. Not his style. No horse track. He escapes on foot. As Black Bart's stage robberies continued, the price yeah. on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. The state of California chipped in another $300. And the U.S. government... 200. The $800 total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s. Something like $80,000 today. And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way. Feels a little bit like The Great Gatsby with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller, it's an American classic. Never knew the rest of this story, and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles becomes Charles Bolton. The world, at the time and now, 
knows him as Black Bart. This is Our American Stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And by the way, we love telling stories about the American West. And not in this particular case, but in so many cases, we use Phil Anschutz's terrific two books, Out Where the West Begins, as a subject and source material for those stories. We've done Samuel Colt's story, Jedediah Smith's, Levi Strauss's, which is a stemwinder, and the Coors family, you know, you take for granted Coors beer. Where did it come from? And who are the men and women who got it going? And why Denver? Why Colorado? These people came from Germany. Well, go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do and hundreds and hundreds of hours of American storytelling, classic American storytelling are there. When we last left off, Black Bart, well, the price on his head kept going up. Wells Fargo had money on his head. The American government... Lots of other private businesses. Well, there's a reason for it. Black Bart, well, he just kept hitting those stagecoaches. And as he kept hitting them, the price on his head, it just kept going up. And now we return to the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. The stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path. Easy, boys. Easy does it. Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, the Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora bound for Milton. The driver of the stage was a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolleri. Rolleri operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning. He thought he might go up the hill a ways and do a little hunting. When the stage began the long climb, Rolleri jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. The stage had nearly reached the summit 
when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush. He trained a shotgun on McConnell. Throw down that box. I, I can't. Please. Bolt it to the floor. Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. We wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop. McConnell tried to signal for Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Or Larry fired. Highwayman stumbled, but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime. They found a number of things the highwayman had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery. He noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Fresh sign. When uh, James discovers the handkerchief, he was delighted, and as he examines it, he sees the mark FX07, and he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark. This man must be found. Hume decides we're going to have to track this laundry mark. Take your men and leave no stone unturned. So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco area. Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes. Is that your mark? Uh, yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers, C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector. Since Hume thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick. A diamond ring was on one finger and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep set blue eyes. He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited. So word on the street is you're quite the successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton, where are your mines located? Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger. <laughs> Mr. Bolton, I'd like you to meet Detective James Hume. 
Minutes later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, because you are Black Bart. The infamous highwayman and poet. I had a premonition that this would happen today. Aren't you the lucky one? Charles Bowles wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with the people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know. Buckbart pleaded guilty to the last of his robberies. Whereas the said C.E. Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin, the state prison for the period of seven years. He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888. After serving a little more than four years, he was then 57 years old. Reporters waited outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches? No. I've given up my life with crime. Are you gonna go back to writing poetry? Did you hear me, son? I said I'm done committing crimes. <laughs> After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco, and there he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety, but he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart, but suddenly one day, early in March, 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip. Bowles was a pretty smart guy. It is likely that he knew that, that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different Western states, then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports, though, was ever confirmed. Black Bart, America's most successful highwayman, had simply disappeared. And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself, tries to make a living honestly, feels like a big bad business had taken advantage of him. And by the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake, and so he was going to take it back. What a story and great work as always, Greg Hengler. And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. 
And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie, or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. Here on Our American Stories. Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings, characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original Soul Sister and the godmother of rock and roll. No, 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 She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he referred to Sister Rosetta Tharp as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child. WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music. And there I heard some of my, my earliest heroes. And it was at the home of the Blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, the Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. Here's Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's you know, She was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did incredible picking. 
That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking, and he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. Don't you know now this train is a clean train, everybody riding in Jesus' name. And here's Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20th, 1950 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell, was what we called her. She was a very traditional person, and basically she was what, what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take her chair, and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas and joined the exodus of poor black Southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ, and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs. And so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural, it was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry.
word. I'm gonna do some chirping, and I ain't no bird. Our American Stories, you're listening to Elvis Presley. Some people think he was the king of rock and roll. But Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll, the godmother of rock and roll, was Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we're listening to her story right now. Jesse's doing a great job, as always, on these music stories. I would urge you, if you get a moment, put in the words Sister Rosetta Tharp and Didn't It Rain on a YouTube search, and you will see something extraordinary. And everything we're talking about you're going to see the way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, all the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards. She created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years. There's something within me Not just holding the rain she told me that when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield. Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s, Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I saw Rosetta, I was, a, I was about maybe 10 years old. Oh, she had, she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. 
it focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And it was as if God was in her and she was communing with him rather than with a human being. When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano. Look up! Look up and see your maker before Gabriel. I met Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently. He was a tyrant. Um, from what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to... Um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer, and he used her to bring people to his churches, and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough, and she said, you know what, I'm going to leave all of it. And she made that big jump. Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. For my time, for my time, it's my right But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker. It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. <laughs> it, it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's, that's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. Actually, it was hurtful to a lot of people because they felt as though they had lost something. They had something, and it was great, but now it's gone. And they, they viewed it almost like a death. 
You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in like another world. Having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebutt on what was happening at the time. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the, the lyric is, Jesus hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me, and growled, rock, it sounded really, to many people, like uh, an invitation, and not to the altar. And here's biographer Gail Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. Roxy Moore also remembers that song all too well. The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Milliner that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing, she said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man. Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best. Gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister 
Rosetta Tharp. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention. All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. Gordon Stoker, from a band called the Jordanaires, remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her four little white babies. And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went to the we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and uh, and we, one of us said, "Well, we are we are the Jordanaires," and he said, mm, "You you are the Jordanaires." Well, he said, "This is going to be a surprise to our audience." Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. And then on then we were in. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring... Um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharp remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. George Klein, a friend of Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church, and it was cool. It was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area, and it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back, and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that. And they adapted to that, and that really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, 
Sister Rosetta Tharp, she had this great feeling, and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's what was that's where it all came from. By the early 60s, Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio. Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. It's a clean train. Everybody ride it, if you can. You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience, English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 folk, blues, and gospel caravan, remembers that performance. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and sort of trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson SG, and began to sing, Didn't It Rain? Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh, yes. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way. I sing this song. Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp performing. Just Lord, take my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired, you know, work so hard. And I'm weak. My body is warm. Rosetta's friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next. Through the storm, 
she wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off. Just the same. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, all right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she was... And she, she would say, where's Russell? I'd say, downstairs. And she would say, he's asking you about shows, right? And I'd say, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Didn't it rain? And great job, as always, Jesse. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features, the story of a song. And we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background, from Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall to Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, and Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind. And now it's time for Greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature. If you've been to a wedding any time between now and 2008, Chances are you've heard Beyonce's Get Out of Your Seat and Dance anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's Single Ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King. A lot of people, when they think of gospel music, think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. Just you, 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 just you,
gospel has that dun 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 right? It's influenced by Boogie Woogie and other styles. And that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. It's, it's what caused people in churches to, to catch the spirit and to go wild. But it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard. Ooh, my soul. We gonna do a little thing for you. Saturday night and I just got paid. historian Todd Boyd. A guy like Little Richard, as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church as well as the black juke joint. Here's Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor. Richard said, I want to bring you to this train station. I want you to hear something. So they listen to the train. The train's going off. He said, a wife when they pick up speed. He said, what kind of notes are those? I said, those are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me. Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer. A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by the companies like Motown. When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully sounding, good balanced sounding records, all America. Here's Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats as soon as you heard the very first notes you knew exactly what this was it came out sounding like god Robinson. On the very first day of Motown, Barry Gordy was there and four other people, and I, I was among them. And he said, okay, I'm starting this record company. We are not going to only make black music. We're going to make music for everybody. We're going to make music for the world. We're going to make music with some great beats and some great stories. And we're going to always do quality music. We'd go places in the South, taking our, our Motortown reviews down there, you know. 
There's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking, intermingling, holding hands. His little black boy holding a little white girl's hand or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be. Here's producer Greg Fillingaines. The basic elements or the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic. I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find them. James Brown and the JBs in the mid-60s changed the sound of, of what dance music is. If you listen to, to um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band, it's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is. Come on! Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip. It was the drum playing. It was funkier than, than Motown. Motown wasn't really funk. That, to me, is the hypnotic power of the James Brown effect. He influenced Sly, he influenced Stevie, he influenced Prince, he influenced dance music. Indeed he did. Now, let's take this back to where we started. Here's the hit-making songwriting production team for single ladies, Terrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for New York City! Trick started this beat, just a drum and the, and the quirky sound that, that we heard. And I just sat in the back. I just thought about if I was Beyonce, I would say what. I'm thinking, I'm quiet. He's not I'm giving me no, no love. He's, yeah. not, he's not, we're not in it nothing. together. He's just, I'm giving him nothing. I'm Jedi. Trick stopped the beat. And I look at him, I was like, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, what, what do you mean? I was going to start another beat. I was like, yeah, you just go and sit in the like, 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 happy, right? He's like, I got the whole thing. He's like, I just wrote the whole song. I got lost on my lips, a man on my hips, and me tied in my Darion the anatomy is there, the heart's there, the lungs, the the stomach, you know, the, the, the I just have to put the legs on. Don't pay him any attention, cause you had to turn turn, now you gonna learn what it really feels like to miss me. She came by to just kind of poke her head in and kind of mm -hmm. hear what it was, and she was like, oh, and she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out, like, there was no nothing, it was like, 
yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the yeah. next thing I knew, she was on the other side of the booth singing, singing, and we were like, yeah, this is this is this is, this is happening. He's thinking about how to connect the dots lyrically. I'm thinking about B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about like to me, it's a church beat. So I just started with the. It's like that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. A that, she's a Southern girl. I could see the paper fans in the church and the, and the wooden benches and the, and the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this Southern girl on the dance floor? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And there you have it, who would have thunk it? From the gospel pews of the American South, throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce and, of course, the producers. And we're talking about Tyrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. The story of a song, Single Ladies, Put a Ring on It, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 